A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by the Genazim Auction House in honor of its upcoming auction this next, next Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. So go on to Gnazim.com, and I'm going to, of course, post the link as well. It's uh, one of the most prestigious auction houses for manuscripts, first prints of rare books, uh, letters, historic letters, art, incredible collection of ancient Sfarim and other historic uh, artifacts. It's going on auction now. You can actually own a piece of Jewish history, our heritage, our glorious past in your own home. It's a great opportunity for connection. I personally love these auctions, and especially Genazim, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So join me in following the auction next Tuesday, December 28th, 2021, at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, go online at Genazim.com. That's G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M.com, um, and I'll post it as well. So that's uh, very exciting. In fact, I was looking through the catalog, and I'm just going to digress for a few minutes before I get to today's topic, because it was so interesting, the history that's going on auction here, um, that I want to share a little bit of the gems with you. There's uh, a Ramban, a commentary of the Ramban on the Torah, that's going on auction there, um, that was printed in Lisbon, in Portugal, before the expulsion. Uh, in, in in Portugal, the Jews were expelled in 1497. It wasn't exactly an expulsion, but that's for another time. In 1497, so here's before that. In 1489, which makes it a incunabula. And because I get corrected so many times on words that I pronounce incorrectly, I practice this word, um, I don't know, 20, 30 times before I said it. So I hope I said it correctly this time. I've read it hundreds of times, but I've never, I think this is my first time saying it, Incunabula. Um, and, and what it is, is, is books that were printed before 1500. Of course, Johannes Gutenberg uh, invented movable type. He, he improved the printing methods in the 15th century, and the first books that were printed are very rare and very valuable. Um, in Hebrew printing especially, there's a scarcity of such books. There's almost none in existence, literally. And for that's for many reasons. Hebrew printing took a bit longer to get off the ground. And also there was always 
books that were burnt and confiscated, and and there's almost no Hebrew books uh, that are in Kianabula. And um, especially here, it's in Lisbon, in Portugal, just a few years after this, Jews are expelled from the Iberian Peninsula, the Alhambra decree from Spain, and then King Alfonso follows in 1497 with a similar decree. Um, so here you have a, 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 a safer published in, in 1489. It blows your mind. So it's historic from so many angles. There's also manuscripts. There's a Rashi on Pirkei manuscript from 1361. It is so old and from Italy, manuscripts in general are so fascinating, and here it's Rashi from the 14th century. It's only 300 years after Rashi's life and when he authored this this work. There's a first edition of the commentary of the Hafla and Sefer Hamikna uh, of Rav Pinchas Horovitz, which is related to our most recent episode on the Hafla, which I just uh, discussed, and it's published by him in his own lifetime. And I got many corrections on how to pronounce his Sefer's name of Sefer Hamikna, and I think I incorrectly pronounced it Hamakna. So here, here it is, Sefer Hamikna. So you can get one of those. There's a handwritten halachic ruling from a Mordechai Leib Winkler, the Levushe Mordechai of Mad. I was just in Mad in Hungary. I was there several times. There's a gorgeous shul that's recently been refurbished. It's called the, the Shul of the Kolarie, who is the Rav Ramyu de Schwartz, the Kolarie. But it was really of the community of Mad, and all the rabbis of the town uh, used it. So the Levushe Mordechai was one of the most prominent and important rabbis in pre-war Hungary. He was a Paisik, he was a leader, a yeshiva of one of the largest yeshivas in Hungary. Um, so uh, so that's, that's just, it was on my mind because I was just there a few weeks ago. Um, there's an illustrated Sefer Minhagim from Amsterdam in 1723 with a Yiddish translation. And I found that there was... Three important historical things about this Sefer Minhagim from Amsterdam. First of all, the idea of how Minhagim, how Jewish customs develops and were enshrined eventually as quasi-Jewish law, that idea of how that developed. So here you have a screenshot, as it were, from 1723 in Amsterdam about how Minhagim are developing over the centuries in between, we'll say, the Maharil, when Ashkenaz Minig first starts to develop, and the modern times when minhag in general in, in Ashkenazi uh, communities was elevated to, to a much uh, more loftier status. So here you have in between there, the 1723 Sefer Minhagim, and you can see how Minhagim are in general developing. The second aspect was that this book comes with illustrations. It's really woodcuts. And one of the best uh, visual windows into Jewish life in the 18th century is illustrations. And, and, and it gives us an inkling and, and an idea of the, all that part of material culture, of, of dress, of, of culture, of homes, of things like that, that are aspects that we very often know least about because they're usually not in a text, but they will appear in an illustration. And finally, the fact that it's translated into Yiddish, the use of Yiddish in the 18th century, why is a custom, uh, a book about Jewish custom translated into Yiddish when we know most texts are not translated into Yiddish? And also, how is the Yiddish used? How is the language developed? Remember, this is in Amsterdam, this is in Western Europe, where Yiddish disappears uh, a century later. Uh, so that's also uh, interesting. So there's all this rich history. And on that same note, there's a Meilbuch, a book of uh, recording the different bismillahs done by a 
Meyer in Würzburg in Germany in the 19th century um, over the course of 37 years from 1863 to 1900. And this particular mile records 86 verses of his and goes into the details of who the people were. An amazing historical record, uh, which was the custom of many miles at that time to record the brises that they did. The Chassam Seifer famously was also a mile, and he recorded 300 brises that he he did. I remember that I attended a bris in Yerushalayim, and the famous uh, mile Meishela, Meishela Weisberg, uh, uh, Weisberg, excuse me, uh, was the mile, and I asked him if he records uh, the brises that he does, and he said the Chassam Seifer did 300 over his career. I do 300 in like a couple of months, so it would be impossible for me to record it, which shows how urban Jewish uh, demographic growth has changed, even the mile scene. There's another book there on auction, the Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch Centennial of his birth, Centennial from his birth in 1908. He was born in 1808, um, and it's in German, of course, the treasure trove of history in that book. It's been translated into English, but it's interesting to have the original and the idea of what it says about uh, the Frankfurt Jewish community, which produced this book in honor of Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, for the centennial of his birth, not the centennial of his yard site. Um, it was 20 years actually after his passing, so that's a historic work also. There's another thing that caught my eye was the handwritten wedding invitation written by Reb David Moshev Chortkev, the original son, in 1889. So the Chortkever, like his father and his brothers, had a, this royal regal court, and there's all kinds of testimonies we have about the very elaborate weddings that they had. So here you have a handwritten invitation to one of those weddings. There's also a letter of Rabbi Yitzchak Kalish of Vorka. Rabbi Yitzchak of Vorka, who was the uh, 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 Talmud of Pshischa and a friend of the Kotzka. And it says about Pidyan Shvulim to rescue Jews from prison in 1830. And he, Rabbi of was the original Askin. He was the original politician of the Hasidic movement. He dedicated his life to Stadlanis, to interceding with the authorities in Poland. And he spent much of his time in Warsaw, Varka's suburb of Warsaw, it's not that far. And he spoke, interestingly enough, in the name of Polish Jewry, not just his followers, the Varka Hasidim, not even just Polish Hasidim, about all Jews in Poland. And it's a very interesting story about his uh, politics and his political activity, so I hope to get to it someday uh, uh, in the future. And there's a whole question, so much so that this was part of his life, even more than his activities as a Hasidic leader, that there was a question when his when he passed away, should he be buried in, in Warsaw or Varka? I say that usually when I'm by his kever in Varka. There's many other letters of some of the greatest uh, tzaddikim in the history of the Hasidic movement. You have to check out the catalog. There's the first edition, Nefesh HaChayim, of Reb Chaim Velazhenah. So that's also a star, because it's presumably without the middle chapters between Shar Gimel and Shar Dalet. I spoke about this at the Nefesh Chaim episode. It's published in 1824 by his son, Rabitzel of There's a letter from the Chafetz Chaim. There's letters from Yitzchak Khan Inspector, from Raftali Trup, from other great rabbis. There's a fascinating historic letter from the future Rashi Yeshiva of Tells in Cleveland, Ramatul Katz and Rebellion Mayor Blach, the two brothers-in-law who are in Yokohama in Japan. It's written on their hotel stationery in Yokohama in 1940. And it's in between destruction and rebirth. The Tells Yeshiva in Lithuania is about to be destroyed a year later, and the Tells Yeshiva in the United States is about to be uh, rebuilt uh, a couple of years later. So it's very poignant that here you're at the crossroads of history, and they're writing about what they're planning to do. There's a 
a handwritten tshuva of Ramesha Feinstein, where he allows shetels. I don't know. If, I don't know if he's talking about lace top shetels, but he's talking about shetels, and it's a famous psak. It's a very, quite a well known, but it's in his own handwriting. It's, it's there. Ramesha's discussing the idea of uh, of, uh, of shetels and how it's permitted, and, uh, and 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 that whole thing. So here it's like happening live. Uh, I think it's from ni- the nineteen sixties. Um, that's a fascinating tshuva as well. You have another proclamation, a public warning from the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, of Avram Yitzchak Akayin Cook, from 1920, forbidding the ascending of the Temple Mount. So it's it's, it's also an irony that it's Rav Cook who uh, forbids uh, ascending the Temple Mount, um, and it's in his capacity as chief rabbi. And it's interesting because Rav Cook actually was pretty conservative in many halachic areas. He was against uh, women's suffrage uh, at the time. Uh, so, so here you have also his his conservative position about uh, ascending the Temple Mount, and it's written in Hebrew and English. It's already the British mandate. There's also a letter from Reb Shaila of Karastir in his own handwriting, his own signature on a postcard. And I think it's, uh, I mean, I think it's interesting that, that the Ganazim auction would uh, would put a price on it, even an opening bid on it. There's something like this is priceless. It's probably worth as much as the Mona Lisa, if not more. Um, you know, Rupshail of Karastir, to have something actually written from him. And that's on it. Also, you have uh, Yassel Rosenblatt, the, the legendary Chazan, probably the most famous cantor in Jewish history. You have his own handwritten music notes, the songs that he composed with the music notes, with the words. Some of them are quite, some of his classics, in other words, they're famous songs, and some of them are actually not known because uh, not everything was recorded back in those days. And the only source we have is these music notes that he himself wrote of his songs. So that's uh, another historic document to have. There's so much history there. I just touched the tip of the iceberg, and I get carried away. I know I went for almost 15 minutes here. Um, I can go on for an entire episode about this because it's so exciting. There's so much tangible history. So I recommend this auction to everyone. I hope you all join it and, and, and enjoy it as much as I am and uh, and see how much uh, Genazim uh, Auction House is providing the world with so much uh, tangible Jewish history. So we got to thank them for that. Um, before I move on to the story of uh, Zisha Breitbart, uh, which is um, which is the topic of today, I also want to mention that yesterday I had the privilege to be on the Amudim event, the Unite to Heal Amudim event. Uh, I think it was already the live event you already missed. It was with, um, but it's going to be you know on their archived on their website, United to Heal or the Amudim website. Unite to Heal or the Amudim website, um, so you could check that out. It's a uh, segment of the famous uh, Gedolim photographer Maishi Yarmish and myself, where we discuss historic photos and their background in honor of Amudim. Moving on, the Ganazim auction, which I did, discussed at length over here, exemplifies how we're the people of the book, um, which is the cliche, and it's uh, you know, we said about the Jewish people. Um, so that's that's one side of the equation. But there were examples throughout Jewish history that we were people of the body as well. There were Jews as warriors or as athletes that happened to happen as well. So this is like a bookend effect uh, um, as a pun. Of on one side we have the Gnazim auction as the people of the book, and the story of Zisha Breitbart is the that were the people also of the of the body. Uh, 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 one of the most famous. Uh, 
examples of in throughout Jewish history of uh, 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 pre-war Europe was Zisha Breitbart. It's an amazing story. I was exposed to this story of Zisha, um, and his he was a strong man, an iron man, however you want to call him. He had he was a a, a world famous act of of um, you know of being able to bend metal and 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 and, and you know carry weights on his back and split metal sheets and bricks and all kinds of things, which I'll get into as part of the German circus uh, during the 1920s. Um, but how did I even hear about it originally? So I was exposed to the story of Zisha in a very most interesting way. Many years ago, I once read the story of a memoir of one of the great Maskilim, I think he was later a Zionist, I don't remember who it was, maybe it was Simcha Asaf, or one of the other um, uh, uh, Zionist leaders and, and, and prominent intellectuals in the early years of the State of Israel. So he had studied in Tells, and the way... He was exposed to the Haskalah literature was by listening to the Shmuzin of Reblazer Gordon and tells. He said if because Reblazer Gordon would 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 cite um, from these Haskalah literature and criticize them, and he would you know show how false they are and not in keeping with Jewish tradition and 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 go against them and how it's forbidden to read them and. Uh, and this young student was curious. He said, if the Rosh Hashiva is quoting them, then they must be in his house. And I'm curious to read them. And he found them in Reblazer Gordon's house and started to read them. That's how he was exposed to Haskalah. So in a very different way, the Zisha Breitbart was not the Haskalah. There's nothing wrong with his story. It was actually, it's actually a wonderful story. But the way I found out about it was by learning Rabbi Rucham Levavitz's Shmuzin in Mir Yeshiva. Um, that's how I, I found it. I was studying Rabbi Yerucham Lovavitz, the great Mashkiach of the pre-war Mir, and I've had the privilege of studying them for many years. I was a young student at the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, and one time I chanced upon a mimer of Rabbi Yerucham in the first volume of his Shmuzin, Das Chachma U Musr. These were Musr Shmuzin discourses which he delivered to the entire student body of the elite Mir Yeshiva in his later years, this is 1934, about 10 years after Breitbart's tragic and untimely passing, uh, so it, the Shmuz was not influenced by immediate current events in the news. It was given 10 years later. This was delivered on a Moitzei Shabbos and Parshas Mishpatim. Rabbi Rucham was discussing the idea of the unity of the will of God through bo, both uh, Chaik and Mishpat, through mitzvahs that we do understand and mitzvahs that are hard to perceive and understand the reason and the unity of the will of God through both Derech Eretz and Taira, the unity of the will of God through both nature and the supernatural. And in that context, several pages into this mimer, he says as follows, and this is a free translation, When the well-known strongman Breitbart was sick and dying after his injury, he was so weak that he could not even hold a pen in his hand. One of the writers of the time observed, Those hands which broke and twisted iron now shake from a small pen. People think that holding a pen is a simple and natural act. For that, one needs no strength. The, the, uh, to, what requires the unique strength is Breitbart's strength to twist iron. And that strength is God-gifted. What, one can, what, what, can one, one, what one can perceive with the contrast in Breitbart's tragedy is that the strength to hold a pen is just as God-given just like his strong men feats with iron. 
and when and where and when there is no strength from God, then one can't even hold a pen in his hand. So he brings the story of Breitbart and his tragedy and his uh, death. Uh, to illustrate a Musar idea. And then the second reference I saw was also in Rabbi Rechel Lavavitz. It was in his Chumash in which he delivered to the foreign students in the Mir, the German and American students in the Mir. It's in his Sefer Das Taira in Vayikra and Parshas Matsaira. It's possible that this Shmuz was delivered to the entire yeshiva as well. Either way, it seems that this was also from Ibrahim's later years, and again, it was several years after Breitbart's passing, so it was not a, it was not influenced by something in the news. It was not influenced by current events. In both instances, it seems that Ibrahim was very much aware and impressed, apparently, with the whole Breitbart phenomenon, and he expected that his audience was familiar as well. So he again brings the story of Breitbart to illustrate a point, an educational point for his students. Over here, Rabbi Rucham is discussing how fear of God that is inherent in the behavior of the Jewish people, Jewish people, how their exercise of self-control is beyond nature and is tapping into the supernatural. It's a new type of strength to be able to program oneself to be able to exercise such self-control. And he's a expressing a positive attribute of the Jewish people in general. And he then once again cites the story of Zisha Breitbart to illustrate his point. Again, this is a free translation. When the famous athlete, in, the, in Hebrew it's written as Ha'atlet Hayadua, the, the famous athlete, Zisha Breitbart showed his fantastic strength. It is said that he was able to lie in a bed of sharp nails and they would not pierce his skin. Almost no impression was made on his skin. They'd shatter boulders, big stone boulders on top of him, and nothing would happen to him. How does sharp nails not cut him to pieces? How is he able to do it? He was able to train himself. He was able to train his body to be able to stain the pain and not allow it to affect him. That's the power of training, and that's the power of transforming oneself. And that's what Rabbi Rucham wanted to, to bring out to his students. So I bumped into it twice over here, and I was curious, who is this person who is so famous worldwide and served as an inspiration to Jews worldwide, especially to the Jews of Eastern Europe, which were, were his own origins, all across the spectrum, even as far as the Mir Yeshiva and Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz. So he was born in 1893, and he passed away, unfortunately, at a young age, at the age of 32 in 1925, from a tragic accident done during his act. Some sources mistakenly provide his birth as 1883, but it seems that that's incorrect. He's born as Zisha, but during his circus career, he was known as Zygmunt. He got a German name, because it was for a German circus, but he was born into a religious home in Strykow, which is a, a small Polish town not far from Lodz, he is an observant family of blacksmiths, um, actually lived in Ludge as well, um, and he grows up, he goes to Cheder, um, and he, uh, he uh, during World War I, he either enlists or is drafted into the Tsar's uh, Russian army, because Poland was part of Russia at the time, and he's captured at the front uh, by the German advance, um, and he ends, ends up being most of the war in World War One again in German captivity. Um, so he settles down in Germany after World War One, and he is hired by the circus. He's already famous as a strongman from a young child working in his father's blacksmith shop. He was able to bend the iron and bend the metal in in the shop, and he was famous in Cheder as being the strongest kid. And some of the Malamdim in the Cheder were actually scared of him. So he was, you know, growing up, he already was known for his supernatural strength, and he 
joins this uh, German uh, circus, uh, goes on a world tour all over Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the United States, um, until he dies at the age of 32 from this uh, tragic work accident. So his career lasted only six years with this German circus company, Busch. Uh, it was the most prestigious circus in Europe at the time. He, he was a one-man act, and his act was to be in a strong man, drawing on his blacksmith background and image. He was called the new, the second Samson, Shimshon Hagibar, or Bar Kochba, the, 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 the one who revolted against the Roman Empire. And he even wore this Roman type of uniform, which accentuated his muscles, and he became an absolute sensation amongst non-Jews, and especially amongst the Jewish audience. He performed all over, uh, touring with the circus, uh, using uh, the strength act, and, and, and he bent iron bar, bars around his arms in floral patterns, similar to Tefillin, even, it looked like. He bit through iron chains or tore them apart. He even broke horseshoes in half. He was able to bend and break horseshoes on stage. He would tear through steel sheets. Um, he, would, uh, he, had a, he had an act that would be holding back two whipped horses. He would hold in his, in his teeth a, a bit, in, um, he, or in his arms, a, a, a two whipped horses who would be whipped in opposite directions. He would pull a wagon load of people with his teeth. He would support enormous weights, such as cars loaded up with to 10 passengers while he would lie on his back. Stones would be broken by sledgehammers on his chest. He also lifted an elephant. And while holding this baby elephant, he climbed the ladder and held a locomotive wheel by a rope in his teeth, and there were three men suspended from the wheel. So he, 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 I mean, he, what he was able to do is just absolutely incredible, and these things are documented, these things, have, there's pictures of it, there's people who saw it, and they were shown in front of thousands of people, this was, I mean, it was, it's authentic. Um, and he, he, um, he, uh, he, he, his, one of his most famous uh, acts was to build a bridge across his chest and then bulls or elephants were paraded over the boards and he even had a motor drone on his chest and two men chasing each other on motorcycles inside the motor drone and this was standing on his chest I mean the, the weight and the shifting is, it's just mind boggling there's actually a picture of him in, the, in a newspaper in a promotional ad for his act uh, and a caption of that picture says this feat of super strength has been and is still being performed by me before thousands of people daily. The huge steel motor drone and the combined weight of motorcycles and men is over 5,000 pounds. Aside from the tremendous weight, the balancing of this cumbersome mass while men and machines whirl around makes this the greatest test of strength, endurance, and skill ever performed in this or in any other stage. And there was a mail-order muscle development course craze at the time, and Breitbart capitalized on that. So he authored a book titled Muscular Power and the Breitbart Mail Order Course. And the course was based around body weight exercises and a special Breitbart apparatus, which was a progressive resistance exerciser made to stimulate steel bending movements. Now, besides for all that, we're going to talk a little bit about the Jewish side of things. He was very proud and very open about his Jewish roots and identity. He's very kind and he's very generous as well. Um, for Jewish audiences, especially in Poland and Eastern Europe, he was a real live Jewish superhero. He, he, his act was usually um, culturally neutral, 
But when he would come to Poland and there was a lot of Jewish audiences, he would exploit his Jewishness. When he came to Warsaw in 1925, he entered the circus arena in a horse-driven chariot with stars of David painted on the sides. And the musical accompaniment was Avram Goldfaden, uh, um, Goldfaden, who was the, the father of the Yiddish theater, one of his uh, songs, uh, Bar Kochba. Um, he even said, I came to Poland for two reasons. One, to visit Kivrayovis. He liked to go to visit uh, graves like I and my trips do with my groups. So he went to go to his ancestors. Uh, and the second one was to promote physical culture among the Jews of Poland. Um, and he, uh, even though Christian Poles, you know, Catholic Poles went to him also, but it was, it was a thing about, you know, the Jews saw him as an icon. Uh, he um, he participated in Jewish activities. He went to the Warsaw Jewish Literary Union. He went to the Yiddish Theater, dressed as Samson, dressed as Shimshin. He even went to the Rebbe's. Uh, he went to the, the uh, court. It's not clear. Some sources say he was the Radzimina Rebbe, and some say the Radzina Rebbe. So I guess one of them is a typo. Uh, both were Polish courts from the House of Pshislis, and it's not that different. Um, so thousands of Hasidim came not to see the Rebbe. They came to see Breitbart. He gave a lot to Jewish charities. Um, he visited the local Jewish community. He would pick up the children there who adored him. He would pick them up in the air seven at a time. He would visit Jewish children in hospitals. He would play music for them. He, he played the cello. Um, and he would go to Shul Friday night and Shabbos day. He still was somewhat traditional. Uh, he would give to many of the Jewish uh, causes. He was uh, he would go to soup kitchens. Um, uh, he would he was a Zionist who uh, you know flaunted his Zionism. Also, he would drape the Zionist flag on stage sometimes, and he encouraged. Uh, um, the, you know, part of his physical education course was for Jews to train to go to the land of Israel. Um, and he was the official, being that he lived in Berlin, that was his official residence, he was the official president of the Maccabi Berlin Sports Federation. Um, so he, uh, you know, with his Jewish identity, he and, and Zionism out there, he sometimes uh, faced anti-Semites in Germany and other places in Europe. It didn't stop him. Um, and that's how he went. And unfortunately, uh, um, while he was on a tour in Poland, in Radom, he stabbed himself in the knee with a spike. He was driving this spike through uh, five one-inch oak boards with his bare hands. He was putting the spike through these five inches of oak with his bare hands, and it went into his knee. And the wound became infected, which led to blood poisoning. There's no antibiotics in those days. And he went through ten operations, and his legs were amputated. The infection had already spread, and he dies eight weeks later in in October, right after uh, uh, Sukkot in, in 1925. He's buried in the Das Yisrael Cemetery in Berlin. And all the Jewish newspapers around the world are writing about it. It's a terrible tragedy. One of the articles said as follows, The massive funeral was attended by thousands of Jews and Christians. A good few kilometers around the graveyard were jammed with hundreds of cars filled with people Coming to the funeral, there were so many people that the elderly cemetery officials declared that they couldn't remember ever seeing such an enormous Jewish funeral in Berlin. The police had to send numerous officers out to maintain order and supervise the procession. Cameras and filming equipment were set up around the surrounding roofs and photographed various scenes throughout the funeral. The chief rabbi, Dr. Ezra Monk, delivered the eulogy emphasizing that the deceased had won the hearts of millions. Rabbi Monk particularly praised the deceased for disregarding all the glory and honor accorded him by the world at large, 
For Breitbart never forgot he was a Jew. He always came back to be with his fellow Jews, wherever they might be, telling them how happy he was that today Jews could claim the strongest man in the world as one of their own. A black flag belonging to the Berlin Maccabi Sports Federation, of which Zisha Breitbart was an honorary president, fluttered throughout the funeral. Telegrams of condolence arrived and wreaths were laid on the grave by sports associations from Paris, London, Rome, Vienna, and Warsaw. That's the end of the article. To me, the whole Zisha Breitbart phenomenon and celebrity should be seen in the context of the time. The interwar period saw the first time in Jewish history that an obsession with, with sports and athleticism spread among the Jewish people, especially in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in the Soviet Union, uh, in Hungary. Uh, sports clubs, soccer, other sports. Uh, sports heroes emerged on the Jewish scene for the first time in Jewish history. Jewish teams and Jewish matches, all this is a great topic for another time, and it's a fascinating one as well. There are Zionist teams, there are Bund, Bundist teams, there are assimilationists, Jews, Jewish assimilationist uh, sports men. Um, Soviet Jews is another story as well. Uh, this is an, uh, becomes an obsession of Jews, which arguably continues until, this very, continues until this very day. So this is a pioneering period in Jewish history. Whether one likes the phenomenon or not, it's a reality, and it's part of the story. So the Zisha Breitbart story can be seen, to, as a certain extent, as a pioneering one as well. Uh, irony is, is that uh, if you look at any of these lists out there, and it's a very popular topic, so it's all over the internet, and there's books about it, of, of Jewish sports heroes, you'll never find Zisha's name, because he never played organized sports. He was a circus act. He was a strong man. And therefore, even though he was a pioneer and should be seen as so, he never uh, appears in the official uh, histories. So this is Yehudi Geber with uh, Jewish History Soundbites. Don't forget to go to the Genazim auction this coming um, uh, Tuesday, and I'm going to post all the details, of course, as well. So you, you can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.